Welcome to the Tinnily Talks podcast, where we dive into the common legal issues facing today's community associations. Whether you're a manager, board member, or homeowner, you're sure to pick up on some nuggets of advice to help you build a successful community in this ever-evolving and changing world. Hello, and welcome to Tinley Talks. I'm Ramona Acosta. And I'm Steve Tinley. And today we'll be discussing the current state of fire insurance with Patrick Prendeville. Patrick started Prendeville Insurance Agency in 1988 after graduating from the University of California, Santa Barbara. Patrick's earned the Community Insurance and Risk Management Specialist, or CIRMS, designation from the Community Associations Institute. Over the years, Patrick has been actively involved in multiple chapters of CAI, serving as president in Orange County and San Diego counties, multiple committees, multiple awards. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So um, we wanted to invite you in today to help us understand what the heck is going on with HOA insurance, because we're hearing crazy stories Mm. about policies going up 100, 200, 300%. Yes, or more. Or more. Yeah. So why why is the insurance, why are rates going up so high? Well, first of all, let me tell you, it's the worst insurance market I've ever been through. And I've been in business for 33 years. Um, I survived the Northridge Northridge earthquakes. So it's just a really bad market. So three things fundamentally are going on. Number one, the reconstruction cost to just rebuild is really dramatically rising. Um, we have a situation where in the past years you have a 3% roll for a building valuation. You know, if we thought it was going to be a million dollars, we had 3%. We're seeing major jumps on that. And so all of the costs are going up. And it's not just simply because of supply chain issues. This has been a trend that's been going into that. And so construction cost, number one, is a big problem. Number two, we have major reinsurance issues, which relates to number three. But let me define that because it's really an insurance term that consumers don't talk about, but it really should be. Basically this. Reinsurance is when insurance companies, such as State Farm, Farmers, Allstate, AAA, whoever it is, they turn around and they'll be, let's say they insure $100 million of risk in the city of Michigan. They don't want to pay out $100 million, so they turn around and they buy insurance from other insurance companies. Could be one, could be more. It's called the reinsurance market. It's a huge market, but it's like a real insider industry term. Well, the problem is the reinsurance market, because of claims activity, has just really gone upside down. So insurance companies that are reinsuring have lost so much money that it's reduced the capacity, which is their ability to go out. Like instead of having 100 million of exposure, they don't have 100 million anymore. So the prices go up and it gets all the way this ripple effect. It's hurt the whole industry. And the reason all that has happened is because of the third reason why rates are going up. It's just good old fashioned claim activity highlighted by wildfires, certainly. But it's not just wildfires, it's just claims are up from liability claims, property claims, but big catastrophic claims from wildfire. There's a long tail. If you think about Santa Rosa, that was a few years ago now, right? 2018 maybe? We're just really seeing it hit full swing now for those claims that happened. So <clears throat> this is not really fire insurance, but just property insurance in general. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a, a, another episode where we talk about water damage claims and we talk about the importance of filing claims when there's a loss. Correct. Um, But now we have associations that are running into non-renewals. So, you know, I think associations are kind of in a conundrum as to what do we do? Because we teach them it's not about protecting the policy, it's about filing the claims and maintaining your assets. But now we're running into, well, now our premiums are going up, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars. And, you know, if 
even if we can get, you know, we're, we're probably going to end up in the surplus or the, or the secondary market because we got a non-renewal from the preferred carriers, farmers, State Farm, Allstate, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And we can talk more about what is a preferred market and what is a surplus market, but, sure. you know, what, what, what do we tell our boards and what do we tell our managers when we're talking about we got to protect the policy? Well, when you, it's a great question. When you're talking about high-frequency claims such as water damage claims, we still have controls for that. And I think it's time the boards take it more seriously as far as what they need to do. Get a water intrusion policy, increase your water damage deductible, preach maintenance to your owners. So you can really control those. A lot of water damage claims certainly are very expensive, but many of them are ten, fifteen, twenty thousand dollars $20,000 just repeated. So get the deductibles up. On a fire claim, especially a wildfire claim, it's much more difficult, obviously, because pretty much any fire is going to be over whatever the deductible is. Pretty much. So associations that are getting non-renewals, mm-hmm. are those non-renewals coming because that particular association had a lot of fire claims, or is it because of where they are located that they are backed up to, you know, open space and there's higher risk because of where the association is located that there might be a wildfire risk associated with it? I would say both of those reasons, their own claims activity or where they are located, but you have some where it's both. And those are the ones that are in real trouble. Because you've got bad brush area, oh, by the way, they're not profitable already. Mm-hmm. So that's a really particularly difficult thing, which is why it's important to control claims, especially if you're in a borderline area. Right, because I know that California legislation was updated, I don't know if it was last year or two years ago, I think it was last year, um, where our fuel modification zones, for, so for those associations that back up open space, they have fuel modification zones that they have to maintain on an annual basis. And it basically creates a border around the community from wildfire. And I know that legislation um, was updated last year to expand those fuel mod zones so there will be more of a perimeter, more of a boundary. But it sounds like that's not really impacting the insurance side of things. You would think it would, Ramona, right? It's like, hey, we have 150 feet. Now we have 250 feet. What's, you know, but unfortunately, where the property underwriters are right now mentally, based on the numbers, is that they're so um, concerned about wildfire risk that very little is going to appease a bad placement on a fire map. And maybe I can just talk about the fire maps for a moment. Yes, please. Okay. So every insurance company pretty much has their own unique map. Some have some common ones, but some common ones are Risk Meter, which is put out by CoreLogic. Another one is Willis Re, another one is Munich Re. There's also the Cal Fire Fire Map. And so these companies subscribe to one of these, or they have their own proprietary map, where they just paid somebody to come in and create their own map and nobody else gets to see it. So the problem with these maps is that they're really not 100% accurate. I mean, I don't care what company it is, and I don't care what fire map you're using. You will find an association that makes no sense. It's like, how could this association possibly be deemed to be in a wildfire area? And by the way, it happens in reverse too. It's like, how is this association not in a high wildfire area? It makes no sense to me. And so it's important to know that the insurance companies all have different fire maps. So when we talk later on, uh, if we talk about how you shop it out, which I think we should talk about, that's a really important factor as far as which fire map are you on and have all the companies representing these fire maps looked at the risk. So that is something that's really important to know. Okay, so what I'm hearing then is that there's not really anything that the association can do from a prevention standpoint, right? Again, going back to water damage claims, there are things that we can do, right? Like we can, we right. can repipe, 
you know, where there's preventative maintenance that we can do to the association that can help us lower the, the possibility of having claims that help that will eventually help us reduce premiums and yes. so forth. But in this particular case, it doesn't really sound like that there's much that an association can do to say, you know, what what can we do from a maintenance standpoint or from a business standpoint that's going to help us yeah. prevent this from happening. As I hate to say it, but this is really the truth. This is, this on, a, is, on a water damage claim, like, hey, they've had a lot of water damage claims. However, underwriter, they repiped, they did this, they increased the deductible. The underwriter starts going, hmm, okay, maybe we can't take a risk with this right. account. When it comes to wildfire, as of this moment, now I'm hoping this isn't always the case, I don't care if they say they have a volunteer fire crew on standby or a paid fire crew right outside the Gates community. If they are placed in a bad fire map position, I don't care what happens. As depressing as it is to say it, it's going to be a tough risk. So this is the reality. That's how paranoid they are. Yeah. So what needs to change with that, though? Like, how does how does it need to change in order for underwriter standards to be able to like factor in the things that hey, this association just spent half a million dollars on fuel mod, and it's basically barren dirt, uh, you know, in a two hundred foot wide perimeter around the entire community. Mm -hmm. Even though they've never had anything, he says it doesn't matter. They're they're here on this map, and unless they can pick up the community on a truck and drive it over someplace that's not in a fire map, that's the only thing I'm going to look at. Like how does how do those standards change? Well, okay, so the great question. Before I answer that though, I want to just point out one other thing. Okay, which is this: we're talking property exposure. Okay, insurance policy is like a coin. I would say you have heads and tails. You have liability and property. Mm -hmm. Right. So really, I'm not trying to send the message, don't worry about fuel mod, don't worry about trying to do fire safety. I'm not trying to say that at all. Because mm -hmm. if you do, then you flip the coin over to liability and you have a huge liability claim against the board for not fortifying the association. So that's why I'm making that really clear. Absolutely. But what you end up doing, um, basically, you should do all those things. And what has to happen for it to change? Number one, um, the Department of Insurance is getting aware of all of this now. And so there's a lot of activity going on um, where the Department of Insurance is looking at it very, very closely. I don't know for sure what this is. I wish I could sit here and tell you exactly what it is. I think we need some luck on our side, certainly. Some lower wildfire exposure You know, definitely would help out a lot. We need new markets to come in. I think it's going to be a time that's going to take some time on the calendar for the insurance industry to kind of recollect some of their money that they've spent, have the reinsurance markets thaw. This could just be a timing thing. We have to kind of wait it out because right now there's really nothing on the agenda that's going to fix this problem overnight. It's just going to take some time to thaw out. So if it took a few years for the wildfires to actually start seeing it being reflected in the cost of insurance, mm -hmm. it's realistic to say it's at least going to be another few years before we get on the other side of this thing? I personally believe that. Okay. There's really good agents that probably would disagree with me on that. Some may say it will take longer. Some may be more optimistic. I think it's going to be a few years okay. of a really bumpy road. And I think when it changes, it's going to change quickly. It's going to be coming out to all of a sudden you have a situation where you have an association that's been in the ENS market, excess surplus lines marketplace, paying obscene premium, and all it's going to be like, hey, guess what? Carrier X, who's in the preferred marketplace, is willing to insure your association, and their rates are just going to drop overnight. So let's talk about that's that. That's why it's going to happen. Let's, let's talk about the preferred market versus excess surplus lines or the secondary market, because mm -hmm. I think most people... I, I, I think that sounds like Greek to most people. It's like, it right? I mean, yeah. like, it's insurance is insurance is insurance. So right. if we could talk about preferred, admitted, non admitted, secondary market, how that impacts our HOAs. Yep. Okay, so imagine a road with a fork, big fork in it, right? On one hand of the fork is the preferred or standard marketplace. 
and that is the companies that everybody knows of. Companies that advertise on TV, Farmers, Safe Farm, Traveler, and it goes on and on and on. There's many, many companies where they advertise or not. There's many of them. It's, it's preferred. They're, they're, for the most part, uh, heavily regulated by the Department of Insurance, where if they want to make a rate change, they go to the Department of Insurance, they say, hey, Department, we want to cut our rates or we want to increase our rates. You know, can we do that? It's a big, you know, negotiation back and forth. They're very, very strict. Um, that's who most associations are through, okay? But the other fork in the road is where you go into the high surplus line. So think about Lloyd's of London. That's like generically we say it. It's like way back in the day, we'd say, could you Xerox this for me? And it wasn't Xerox, it's that Xerox dominated the copiers, right? Lloyd's of London is that. And so basically it's a huge marketplace, goes back hundreds of years, and basically it's high place. So it's earthquake insurance is always in there. Anything to, uh, you know, insuring satellites, ports, anything that's high risk. Well, wildfire is now high risk. So if the standard marketplace declines a risk for it, then it goes to the excess of surface lines. There's not as much um, regulatory action from the Department of Insurance. The, the Lloyds of London type of market can charge whatever they want to charge, whatever they think they can get. So that's how we're going from a $25,000 premium to a $300,000 Exactly. And it goes further than that. Let's say you had a carrier, and I'm just going to pick a name. Let's say it's Travelers, right? Travelers like, look, this community is in a high risk. We're willing to do it, but all, all we can do is charge X because that's what we're filed for, that we're at the top end of what we can charge. If we could push it out and go further, maybe we would do it. So maybe there'd be a middle road, mm -hmm. but the Department of Insurance doesn't want to allow them to do that because they're trying to be who they are, which is a consumer protection agency, which they should be, and they're trying to keep their rates in check. So you have this big gap in the middle where it's a big empty It's kind of counterintuitive. So you, you protect the consumer by not allowing these, you know, these primary or preferred right uh, insurance agencies to do it and then forcing the consumer into this excess surplus where they're going to get raked. There's a big gap in the middle, you're right. Well, and in there addition is. to the skyrocketing premium rates, mm -hmm. there's also the issue of um, the amount of coverage. Correct. Because typically when you're in the secondary market or the excess surplus lines, you're not getting, you're not being insured to value. So you're not getting where your CCNRs require quote unquote full replacement cost. Mm -hmm. My understanding is, is that in that secondary market, you're probably not going to get that. So even though you're paying three times as much or four times as much in your premiums, you're probably getting less insurance coverage. Correct. This has really been going on for about two years now. And so we've been in the thick of it. We have associations that would have a 40 million total insured value, meaning in order to rebuild, it would be a $40 million. And maybe 60, maybe 70, 80, whatever it is, I have all these ranges in my book. And last year we were able to get, or the previous year we got them the full limits and we got them maybe a $50,000 premium. That policy has now grown to potentially five, no, 300, 500, 600, $700,000. And instead of getting the 40 or 50 million in total insured value, we can only offer them $15 million. So if they have a claim over that $15 million mark, they're out of coverage. And so, it goes back to that capacity issue I mentioned earlier. From the reinsurance underwriters, they only have so much to go around. So for both of you then, what, what is an association, what's the board of directors supposed to do? Because if they're required to have $40 million of insurance and they can only get $15 million, what is the risk to the association and to the board of directors because they were unable to insure they were, they were unable to get that full replacement cost. They're, they're, they're essentially in breach of their governing documents. What, so what are they supposed to do? 
Well, I always refer to the attorney, so I will today as well, but I will also say from the insurance agent's perspective, I just think it's a matter of the board can only do what they can do. Right. If the market doesn't bear the opportunity to buy it, I don't see how they can be scrutinized, but certainly. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's okay. So if somebody has an issue with the board, you breached fiduciary duty, right? It's essentially a liability claim, right? You failed to uphold a, a, a duty of care, but in performing that duty, okay, how did I operate? I mean, I would happily be able to fulfill my duty and be able to purchase a product. I want to purchase the product. The problem is that product doesn't exist. And the most I can do is buy a third of the product at 10 times the price. Um, and that's really all that our, our community can do. So I don't, I don't have much uh, of a concern from a liability standpoint from a board that actually looked at this and said, okay, what is the best option here? What is the most coverage that we can get in a way that we can pass it legally and pass those costs on? Rather than someone saying, it's just too expensive this year, we're just not gonna buy it. Fingers crossed. Hey, nobody, go, you know, smoke in the common area because we're uninsured at the moment, right? So, so for for the homeowner that's in the building that burned down, or the association that burned down in the wildfire, and you know, it was forty million dollars that they were supposed to have. They only got fifteen million, and so now we can't rebuild, right? So the homeowner is going to sue the association. And I agree with both of you. I think that the boards can only do what boards can do. And they're limited by what's available to them. But Steve, you always talk about paper the file. So how do we document this so that there's some protections so that the board can set it, set themselves up for some protections down yeah, the road? Yeah, I think, you know, it'd be and this is one of the reasons why it's glad that you're here. We always, you know, hammer on our clients to really develop a relationship, a working relationship with their insurance agent and their insurance broker to help them understand what the situation is and be able to explain it to the membership, put them on notice. I don't know this, but is there some type of surplus product? that an individual owner could purchase, just say, hey, listen, we're underinsured, we can't get the full insurance that we need, but you as an individual homeowner are gonna need to go out and there might be this excess product that you can purchase and you put your entire membership on notice, right? You pass the duty onto them. Is there anything like that that's available? It's not really an excess product. However, okay. it's your normal homeowner's unit owner policy, the mm -hmm. HO6, that is what they wanna really beef up. So number okay. one, <clears throat> they wanna get plenty of interior building coverage in case they run out of money on from the association side. Mm -hmm. If you have a walls-in policy, meaning the association takes care of the cabinetry and the flooring, mm -hmm. buy that on your own policy. It's not too expensive. It's good to have it in case you need it. But number two, and this should really be loudly told to the association, every unit owner should be encouraged to buy individual loss assessment. Now, the normal maximum amount you can have is $50,000. But what if you have a situation where your policy runs out of limits? And then you need more money. Every unit owner can go to their own individual policy. It's a fire claim. It's always covered. And you get up to $50,000. Take $50,000 by the number of units. It will add up pretty nicely. And mm -hmm. it's cheap. That's the other item. This is a $20 a per year premium for the unit owner, give or take. Yeah. So, I mean, it's just having that type of conversation and doing mm -hmm. it in the purview of your membership. Just laying it out for your membership. I think a lot of boards, <clears throat> they get frustrated by this or sometimes they're a little apprehensive just to be candid with their members. Hey, guys, this is the insurance market's crazy right now. So what the situation is, we're gonna have to levy assessment to pay for insurance that we're supposed to have. And to make matters worse, we cannot even purchase a product feasibly that covers what our CCNRs say that we're supposed to cover, which we've had in place for years. So these are, we've done some investigation for you. We've talked to the professionals. These are things that are available for you, knowing that the association right now 
can't cover everything that you're expecting it to cover. So you as an owner are going to have to, you know, step in and do that. And if as all, they always should have done anyways, yeah. now it's really important. Yeah, it's really important, right? And then as a, you know, if I was the the, uh, the liability carrier for the board, I'd say, thank God that you're doing that. Yes. Right? Right? <laughs> the nightmare scenario is a board that just tries to sweep this under the rug because they don't want to upset their neighbors, right? Rather than just disclosing and giving everybody the information and the opportunity they have to, okay, you guys have to mitigate some of this risk independently. We can't do it as an HOA, right? Exactly. Exactly right. So it's, it sounds like there's just, there's not much available. You know, it's 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 hard to say that this is just, this is kind of is what it is at this point. Totally. And that's, um, that's, yeah. that's the unfortunate side of it, but I, I feel like that's kind of the message that we need to send. Is it that is what it is. Well, I mean, I don't want to pin it quite that way. No, but, but, but there are a couple things. Yeah, and that's what I want to talk to you about yeah. because, um, as, as a manager, we have always been taught, you don't need to shop out insurance. You don't need to shop it out every year, right? If, you, if you've got a good policy and you've got a good relationship with your agent and you've got adequate coverage, a good premium, you, know, you don't need to shop it out every year. Given the current circumstances, you know, should we start shopping it out? And, and what about the underwriters? Because that's the other issue is underwriters don't like to see it shopped out all the time as well. They don't like to see multiple agents coming to the same underwriter. Right. It just it gives it kind of a red flag. So what, what do we do? So um, it's two prompts. Number one, on the preferred side, you need to shop it out. So you need to make sure that the preferred companies have all seen your risk. Because you could have one company that uses maybe Munich Re Fire Map, and that maybe they're the only one using it, and for whatever reason, they're not concerned about that location and they're willing to do it. Problem is solved. You just switch from travelers to whatever the company is. So that's important because it's important to note that not every agent or every broker has access to the entire marketplace. In fact, there's no one broker or no one agent that has access to the entire entire preferred marketplace. They have to go through wholesalers and it's a lot Got of work. It. So you have to make sure that the preferred marketplace has seen everything. So it's not you're not just shopping uh, insurance, you're actually shopping fire maps. Fire, that's exactly right. Okay. Shopping fire maps. Is there is there could, could there be two carriers hypothetically that use the same fire map? There's for sure is. But that will price that risk differently, even yes. though you're on the same location well, on the map, but they just look at it as you know. Assuming that they're not in an extreme higher because this isn't a yes or no. Okay. This is a measure of degrees. Okay. So if you have a situation where it's like it's a moderate fire risk. They're going to pay more than a low fire risk, but the insurance company is still going to want to give them insurance. It's going to be a higher premium, right? And then it gets closer and closer to the edge. Then it gets to the point where there's a line of no return. It's extreme fire risk, and the preferred marketplace is simply saying no. It's just that you might have another preferred carrier who has a different map who doesn't define that as an extreme wildfire. Maybe they look at it as moderate. So it does happen. Have you ever seen a, a... Two preferred carriers with the same map. One says that's moderate. One says that's high fire. No, because they're following the same map. Then the same the map is the map. The map okay. is the map. Got it. Today's episode is brought to you by Altera Assessment Recovery. Altera provides comprehensive attorney-supervised assessment collection services to community associations throughout California. Trust us with your collection needs. We'll get the job done, done right, and as quickly and efficiently as possible. Altera Assessment Recovery. We're the collection team you've been looking for. 
So you, you, you mentioned um, shopping out carriers, but also shopping out agents. And we have independent brokers, and then we have farmers agents, and state farm agents, and all state agents, and so on and so forth. Um, and one thing that you've always taught me is that you're a farmer's agent, but if farmers declines it, then that opens you up to then shop it out to the market. Correct. So I'm a manager, and I have an association, and I need to shop this out. Do I just send it to you, or should I be sending it to three different agents that I work with that I know? I mean, what is your what is your feel for that? Three might be overkill for the preferred. So what I would do is I would talk to the agent that has it and just have the agent specify which companies they're going to check with. Mm-hmm. And then you go to another agent and say, these, com- these companies are going to see this risk. Do you have any other preferred companies besides what we have here on the list? So we have to dive a little bit deeper in, our, bit. in our RFP process. A little bit. Okay. And now yeah. it could be your agent is going to convince you that they have access to the entire market wise, and maybe they do, but you want to make sure that that is the case because that could be a really big mistake. It could be a really big mistake. So that's the preferred side of it. Now, on the excess and surplus lines, that is a different story altogether. You should go in with one broker that you trust because the underwriters do not want to see this risk from five different agents. And intuitively, as consumers, we think, well, we better shop this out. More agents is better than one. Here's the problem. Let's say there are 12 excess to surplus lines carriers available to this association. If you have three brokers go out and block those 12 in some combination, maybe they each have four to split however it's split, the problem is, is that we as agents, we need those companies to layer the policies because that's what we've been doing. Like right now today, I'm working on one where we have a $15 million sublimit of insurance for fire. We have three different insurance companies come to the table for that. Well, if we have other brokers who maybe another broker has my second leg, then I can't deliver the 15 million. Hmm. So it's important to know that as long as you have a broker that you trust and you trust that they're doing a thorough job, mm-hmm. if, you don't have a, if you have a trust issue with your agent, get a new agent anyways, mm-hmm. right? But just on the excess of surplus lines, it is not wise to have a bunch of brokers stocking the market. The underwriters don't take the application seriously. The brokers step on each other, and it doesn't really serve anybody. So, so again, I, and I, I, I'm trying to whittle this down because I know we have board members as audience, and we also have managers. And so, as a manager, right, I don't, I don't know. Right. I, I, I don't know what I'm shopping at. I'm going to my agent, I'm going to you, and I'm saying, Patrick, here's my CCNRs. I got this non-renewal letter. I need insurance. Do what you can for me. Um, I'm not going to know if I'm in a preferred or surplus until you come back to me and tell me what you were able to give me. Mm-hmm. So I'm thinking that I need to go to one agent first, and based on those results, then I need to start shopping. Precisely. Right? Okay. And I would say the incumbent agent makes the most sense. Yep. If you have a good relationship with the incumbent agent, have a communication with him or her, who are you going to in the preferred marketplace? Who are you going to in the access to surplus? So I'll set up at the right at the front or wait until the numbers start coming back? No, right up front. Right up front. Right up front. Don't Got wait it. for the numbers because the numbers may be hindered by what's going on in the background. You could prevent it. Also know that if you're going to maybe a state farm agent, well, state farm is very clear. Their, their agents can only do state farm, mm-hmm. so they won't get you the access to surplus lines. So it kind of just depends on who it is. Right. Got it. And not to pick on state farm because quite frankly, state farm during these fire wildfires, they've been doing a good job yeah. in the industry. So I'm a manager. Hey, Patrick, I need insurance. Please let me know who you're going to get numbers from. Exactly. Got it. Preferred and ENS. Yes. Yeah. Got it. And then once that information comes back, then is it up to me? Do I have a conversation with you saying, okay, well, these are the, the preferred carriers and the ENS carriers that I know Patrick's going to look at. 
how do I know what other carriers there are to ask somebody else if they could look at those carriers? Most managers have one, two, or three agents they trust. Okay. Call the second agent and say, this is what's going on. This is where the account's going. Uh-huh. Do you have any other markets in the preferred marketplace that will fill this in so we get a full look mm-hmm. and the ideas? And if not, then um, you know, then you just let the first broker go with it. Have you ever seen a situation where there's two agents or two brokers that are you know tap the same carrier but are able to get two different premiums? Well, that happens from time to time. Okay, but that's rare. It's, Don't yeah, expect that to happen. It's rare, but it happens. And it usually requires a broker of record letter and a whole bunch of other yeah. stuff. It yeah, does, it does happen sometimes. It's not like, yeah, hey, you're, you know, your premium's $100,000, yeah, but you don't understand, we're working with Patrick Prendeville. Oh, okay, in that case, you well, guys are in exactly, good hands, you know, exactly. it's only 60 grand. <laughs> okay, <laughs> just wanted to get that off the like table. Like a good neighbor, you're in good hands. <laughs> I don't think that's any trademark violation, is it? <laughs> good neighbor, in good hands, I love it. Okay. And, um, and how, how soon should we start? Because, again, back in the old days, right, I mean, you didn't, you didn't shop for insurance too early. Mm-hmm. It was, there was a time when it was too soon to start. Um, non-renewals come, what, about 60 days out? 60 days, you 90 should, days? You should get it within 60 days of the renewal. You're okay. probably going to get it in like 65, 68 days, typically. Okay. You know, but so 60 days is supposed to be what? Legally, I, I think it's maybe it's 45. I don't even know. They're very careful about that, Ramona. Mm-hmm. So it's usually not a problem. They usually get that number. In fact, what they do is this if they come too close and they're in that window, they extend the, the cancellation date. So it used to be March 1st, now it's March 10th. Right. They needed those extra 10 days to make sure you had legal notice. Right. And they really built up some conservative time estimates there. Because because again, you know, going back to nuts and bolts where you have manager gets a non-renewal notice and it goes on to the monthly board of directors, it goes into that board packet and they notify the board and then they go out to bid. And so you don't want anybody to be surprised. Mm -hmm. You don't want anybody to feel like they're under the gun. Um, But start early, start late. I mean, is it going to have any effect on premiums? Because this market is crazy right now. It's start early. You want to start early, especially if you're going to be one of those unfortunate associations that's going from 50 to 500 or more. It's about communicating to the association what's happening. So starting early is smart. And if you're in a wildfire area, you pretty much know it. If you're in a wildfire area. So you could area, just call the agent and go, what's, what do I look like? You're not going to hurt yourself yeah. by having that conversation. Well, that's, that's what I'm asking because most CCNRs, they require an annual review of the insurance policies. And this is something that Steve and I have talked about on a couple of different other episodes is have your insurance agent come in and meet with the board of directors and talk about insurance policies. So if you're in a wildfire area, or if you have a bunch of claims and your and your insurance is, is coming up, your due date is coming up, call the agent, have them come into a board meeting. Lay, let's get the lay of the land Absolutely. before we can go out to bid. Absolutely agree with you, 100%. So now you've been talking about um, these increased premiums, $700,000 Premium. I think. What'd you say? You had one that was sixty-five thousand. That went to seven hundred thousand. I have several like that. Yeah. So that's not in the budget. Right. So how do we? How do we, Steve? How do we pay for that? Because we're we're we have civil code limits, right? Like we can only raise assessments twenty percent mm-hmm. per year. We can do a special assessment of up to five percent per year. We can go out to the membership for a vote. That takes time, which we may not be able. We may not have that time given that sixty-day window, right? Because that requires a double secret ballots. So, what do we do? How do we pay for it? Well, um, I mean, I'm just kind of 
you know, putting this in my head right now, I'm just imagining, you know, 40, 40 unit or 100 unit development getting hit with a 3x or a 4x premium increase, right? And you don't have a thousand homeowners to spread that around. So you're looking at a pretty sizable assessment increase. I mean, Davis Sterling Act, we can levy an emergency special assessment. We could do that. Uh, we could think it'd be an emergency basis. But the problem is, is that I believe the language of the code says, uh, for you know, unforeseen and extraordinary expenses that couldn't have been reasonably foreseen by the board in preparing the budget. You know, so if you're in a situation where you know you've got these increases and you're sitting on it and you know it's going to be very expensive, but you still go through your budgeting process and you prepare a budget, and then after the budget's released, a few months later, you want to levy this emergency special assessment. I think that's grounds for you know plaintiffs' attorneys to get in there and start crying foul because the board knew that this expense was coming. So I think it is something that you just have to address head on. And if you know this is the expense that you're looking at, talk with legal counsel and say, well, yes, we we'll probably have to raise assessments this year. And right after our fiscal year ends, we'll probably have to raise assessments again. And then we're going to have to do that probably in conjunction with an emergency special assessment just to make sure we can float the premium. But yeah, I think, I think what I struggle with is that you may know that you're in a wildfire wildfire area. You may have an indication that you're going to be hit with an excessively high premium, but you ha have no way to anticipate what that premium is going to be. You don't know if it's going to be three hundred thousand dollars or seven hundred thousand dollars. And so, how do we? How do you adequately budget for that? Because it's budget season. I can call Patrick and I can say, okay, I understand that this is what's going on in the insurance market. What can you tell me? Well, yeah, it's a difficult question to answer because on one okay. hand, as the agent, we don't want to give you a surprise and mislead you. On the other hand, we don't want to cause undue panic because there may be a solution to this, right? right? We could find a different carrier that's willing to do it. So it is a little bit of a predicament for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So Call there, your attorney. There, yeah. And <laughs> there is there are some other things that people are doing. So I don't know if we can kind of go yeah, that Yeah, let's talk now. about yeah. it. So, okay. So the premise is this. All of the HOA policies, they're in the commercial lines marketplace, right? They're not the personal lines. Personal lines is auto and home, life insurance. Commercial is shopping centers, office buildings, HOAs. It's a much different market, okay? So the commercial lines is much more, um, uh, it's brutal, just for lack of a better word, than personal lines. So what if you could take your homes and instead of having them as condos, which a lot of them are, if they fit the personal lines underwriting guidelines, such as they're side by side, right? They're not stacked condo units, for instance. Then what you have is maybe a possibility, if the CCNRs are friendly enough to it, to maybe convert the insurance responsibility from the association to the individual unit owner. That will then put them from an HO6 condominium unit owner's policy to an HO3 homeowner's policy, and their premium likely, and everyone I've seen so far has worked, likely will go way down. Like it won't be a big deal in their life at all mm -hmm. as compared to. Then what the association does is they insure the clubhouse, the pool, the streets, the mailboxes on a commercial policy. More expensive than it would normally be because they're still in a fire zone. But we're getting out of this whole crazy $500,000, $700,000 premium. And now it's common area only. The need for insurance goes way down because you go down to whatever the values are. It's a much more friendly way of going if it works. And if, so we always say, talk to your attorney and see if this can be worked. If it can't be worked, then maybe the board should consider putting a vote to the association to actually change the CCNRs, change the insurance requirements. It's messy. You wouldn't do it unless 
this extreme situation was happening, right? Like you would just, not, not, in a normal mind, you would never say, I got a great idea. It's not a great idea necessarily. It's just compared to the alternative of spending six or $700,000, maybe it's something to look into. And several associations I've seen have done it and uh, they've been successful doing it. So they've done it how? They've changed just the allocation of maintenance responsibilities between the association, like, I'm just well, trying to The understand. allocation of the we insurance got, responsibilities. We got lucky on one where the CCNR said that if the association is unable to acquire or afford insurance premiums for the condominium units, then the insurance obligation would be released to the owners. Okay. So then the owners went out and bought HO3 policies where it properly fit into that insurance as a attached homeowner's and policy. That's, and that's how you got the lender buy-in on that because it was in the CCNRs. Right. Now, other ones, they don't have those friendly CCNRs, and that's kind of a one-off, right? But, right. But is it the only one out there? I don't know that. But the other ones where they're stuck is like, we don't have this convenient language in our CCNRs. Then you put it to the vote of the committee and you change the CCNRs whether it's for temporary or forever, and you just say, we are going to release the um, insurance responsibility to the owner. You satisfy the banks because A, they just want to make sure the, co the coverage is in place. B, when we're talking about these policies that are five, six, seven hundred thousand dollars $700,000, we're not talking about full limits. So the bank is never satisfied. They look at the community and go, wait a minute, you need 80 million of coverage. You only have 15. Well, that's where we are today. So the banks are never happy with plan A, right? Um, do they accept it? Yeah, they do, but they're not happy about it. Got it. Yeah, so I've they're happier that. going to the homeowner side if it qualifies for the personalized marketplace. I'm telling you, it's messy, but I just think that this is unsustainable. And as I said earlier, this could take some years of ironing out. If this was a one-time hit, that'd be one thing. But you know, what happens if it's five hundred thousand dollars this year, and six hundred thousand dollars the next year, and then six fifty the next year? Yeah. It could be devastating. Well, so I think it's time to at least have the conversation, think outside the box. A, are we eligible for personal lines? That's the first question to answer. And then B, is it something we want to go through? You know, is it is it really something? It's just a conversation to have. Yeah, I mean, I've seen that language before, and that's a, a simpler you know, CCNR amendment than I was originally contemplating when you brought it up. But you're saying that even if you were to, it's not that that type of language, let's say every community out there, the membership was like, yeah, I'm raising my hand. Let's go. I'll fill out ballots. This is, that's, let's release that. I'll, I will voluntarily assume the obligation in the event the board's not able to purchase it. Or it's impractical or whatever the reason is. But you're saying that even if they do that, that product might not be available to them based upon the nature of how their development's constructed. If it's you stacked. have to fit into the underwriting guidelines mm. of the personal lines insurance marketplace. So you have to be careful of that. Got it. Yeah. But, if, but if it is doable, because it's gonna be less expensive to the homeowner to Way get less. that HO6 or that HO3 policy than to pay the assessment increase for 100%. the master policy, and it's cheaper for the association to go through a CCNR amendment ballot, then it's gonna to be to pay for that insurance premium. 100%. So if they qualify for it, it may make financial sense. Absolutely. And so I'll tell you, if you have an HO6 policy, it's very conceivable that you might be spending three to $500 a year on it, right? That's your condominium unit owner's policy. If you get an HO3 policy, you know, let's say it's $1,000, which is very real, right? That's not a crazy premium at all, high or low. So you're talking about a $600 difference per tax, 400 to 1,000. Well, but you get full coverage, by the way. Well, first of all, you get to cancel your HO6 policy. You don't need it anymore. The HO3 policy, the homeowners, now makes the HO6 irrelevant. Mm -hmm. So your true cost is now $1,600 more. Well, compare that to the assessment that's going to be coming your way yeah. for an association policy that doesn't even have 100% coverage for you. 
So it's way better financially for the unit owners if they can make it happen. Makes sense. Now, getting back to, because this is where people stumble on it, is like, I don't understand how personal lines is broader than commercial. So I just want to kind of dive into that a little bit more. The ones that I've seen, um, we've had a situation where the commercial premium, we beat that horse, we know, it went high. Then on the personal lines, it's not like every personal lines carrier is like, yes, we'll do that area, but we were able to find enough of them that they were able to get the whole communities covered. There's enough carriers out there to make it happen. Personal lines is just more friendly. Interestingly, we've had a situation where we've taken a commercial policy from a name brand company, I won't say who it is, and then on the commercial side, they're like, no way, this is extreme fire hazard. But then you go to the personal line side of it, and guess what? It qualifies. The same company. They use different fire masks between commercial and personal. Think of it as a different company, because it kind of is. Huh. So you have Carrier X saying on the commercial side, no way will we ever give you insurance. But on the personal line side, they're saying, come on in the door. It happens. That's crazy. Yeah, I know it's crazy. But that is what's happening, and so you have to really be mindful of, um, of the fact that, as a general rule, personal lines is way more forgiving than commercial, and the HOA is in the commercial box. If you jump into the personal lines box, you might have a better opportunity. You just have to do some research. It takes a lot of coordinating. I mean, a lot of coordinating. Just trying a lot to think of in the event of that loss, though. Let's say, okay, yeah, we've converted to HO three policies, and we had a wildfire. My, you know, I had a destruction event. I mean, typically the association would be the one getting those proceeds and directing the reconstruction and doing all of that. So how would the interplay be if now it's technically the owner's policy and the proceeds are being issued to them? It's, it's, it's messy. And so basically, and again, again, this is not like, hey, yeah. I've got a great idea. Yeah. This is what do we do because of the absolute horrible situation we have. So got I it. want to keep that under that. Yeah, lesser of two evils. Yes, yes exactly. Deal. Got it. But what you do is you make the association an additional interest on every single unit owner's policy. Huh. And then they have, the association has more protection on that. Okay. But now you're in an administrative nightmare because now you need to get that copies is, of all those policies. That is the manager and you speaking, and you were absolutely correct, Ramona. <laughs> it is. Yeah. yeah. But Let's again, see. we have an untenable situation. Yes, yes. So it's so like, I guess coupled with that CCNR language saying we release the obligation, there would have to be something, you know, in there saying, but yeah, but the proceeds are essentially, you know, under the control of the association and the reconstruction is directed by the association. Right. And then right. the other question I get all the time, and I think it's a great question, is well, what happens if my neighbor doesn't buy insurance? Well, on one hand, it's the same problem today. If your neighbor doesn't have insurance, it's still yeah. a problem. But it's a bigger problem if you do this HO3 concept. Mm -hmm. So what happens? Well, uh, I believe, and no attorney here. <laughs> uh, I mean, I'm not an attorney, I should say. You're here. The deal is this. If you have a situation, I believe, where the association policy, um, where the association has a fire and a unit owner doesn't have coverage, I believe that the association is going to have a responsibility to rebuild that unit because mm -hmm. they still have it's still their property mm -hmm. so what you do is you would have to pass a special assessment policy for the association and all those the HO3 policy by loss assessment coverage of $50,000 and then it adds up to the community and everybody's gonna have to go to their insurance policy and pick up loss assessment coverage to rebuild that unit yeah but that, that's what I'm saying if, that's if, a problem but it's there's a solution it is, but I mean, if we're if we're gonna do a CCNR amendment, I mean, we could require in the amendment that the members get the insurance. It's not, you know, they have to get the insurance. They have to provide evidence of the insurance, right? Because now we have disciplinary procedures that we can enforce to make sure that they get it and that we have copies of it and that it stays current. But again, you know, that becomes the administrative nightmare. Yeah. 
you know, it's just one of those things where. Um, yeah, my mind's racing right now. Yeah, me too. Structure, structure the language, right? Like yeah, special reimbursement assessment that you'd have to make specifically leanable. So yeah, we're rebuilding your condo because there wasn't you know those types of things. But at the same time, we're throwing you know a, a reimbursement uh, assessment that we're actually going to lean on that condo as well in yeah. order to secure you know reimbursement. I mean, there'd have to be all those protections in there. So it's, it's <laughs> the more I think about it, the more complicated well, it gets. Well, and I'll tell you something. Um, it's not universally accepted, I suppose, maybe. It just depends on CCNRs. And yeah. so I just lay it out as an option and then say, talk to your legal counsel. Yeah. If this is something you want to go through. I will help you do it. It's a lot of work. And I got to tell you, um, I've had friends of mine in the business, my business, who have said, Patrick, I don't know, maybe it's just easier to tell them their premium went up and move on. It's just like, I, I just have kind of a moral problem with that. Mm -hmm. I just think, you know what? If there's a different way to skin the cat that works, and it saves this association from financial hardship. Anybody that talk about it doesn't mean it's going to work very well. Yeah, I mean, it, it depends mean on the locale and the type of development, type of owners Absolutely. that are in there. But yeah, I could see there's Absolutely. a situation, hey guys, we got to chop off each of your legs, but we can do a little bit of work and you only have to lose a foot. <laughs> you know, which are you going to... What are you going to go with, yeah. right? Not to sound morbid, but um, yeah, but that's crazy. There's there, there aren't many options. I think we're in, in the position of we don't have a ton of options and we're just gonna to have to start thinking outside the box and just realize that this is not five years ago. Right. Right? And so we're gonna to have to start becoming creative with solutions, obviously within the within the parameters of our documents and with, you know, state statute, but we we don't have any other option other than to get creative and figure out how to get insurance and how to pay for it. Mm -hmm. Um I know that it, you had mentioned um the CLAC, the California Legislative Action Committee, has a call to action and that they've been talking to the insurance commissioner. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, um, they've got something like 500 testimonies from managers and homeowners that have been affected by this. And they went to the Department of Insurance and they got a very, very welcome reception from them. And so now there's active conversation going back and forth on what can be done. Now, I don't know what the solutions are, meaning um, not only do I not have them, but I don't think the DOI Department of Insurance has them either, but I think having the conversation is certainly helpful, um, and it's going to you know, maybe it'll result in something good. So it's it's good to know that conversations are being had with the Department of Insurance, and that these letters are getting to the commissioner. Just off the top of your head, as crazy as it may seem, and as unlikely as it may seem, what is a lever or a button that could be pushed by the commissioner? Could he say something to the effect of? Hey, effective tomorrow, all preferred carriers have to price wildfire risk at X. He could do that. However, I think the problem is very reminiscent of the Northridge uh, earthquake because what happened after that is the Department of Insurance had a deal where if you had a homeowner's insurance client, you had to offer them, it was a mandatory offer of earthquake insurance. Well, the insurance companies just said, hey, Commissioner, we just really got blitzed by the Northridge quake. We can't keep exposing ourselves to these earthquakes. You have to let us get out of this mandatory offer. Department of Insurance said, no way. You can't do that. We're going to mandatorily make you still comply with this. So what the insurance companies did, they just sat on the sidelines. They stopped issuing new policies. So as it relates to this wildfire uh, conundrum, I'm afraid that if the Department of Insurance comes in and says, hey, preferred carriers, you will do this at this rate, I'm afraid you'd have a complete vacancy in the market, and then we'd really be hurt. Because associations that are not in wildfire areas, they would be affected. They could potentially lose their coverage. 
And the commissioner doesn't have anything with the excess and surplus market, right? So it would drive more people to that marketplace? It would, and that, but also Department of Insurance does have some authority over excess, just not the same as the preferred. So I don't want to be an absolute and say Got it. Out, but not nearly as much. It's a much different world. And so they'd have to go excess surplus. And that's exactly what happened after Northridge. You had farmers, State Farm, AAA, Allstate, all of them sat on silence. So homeowners insurance, moratorium. Yeah, I, I remember when State Farm would not write a condominium policy. They were only single-family homes. You could not get a condo policy from them. Yeah. So if the Department of Insurance comes in and forces the issue, I'm afraid that there will be a boomerang effect. There has to be something where the insurance company is allowed to make some kind of money and profit on it. So maybe the Department of Insurance, and it's just me speculating, maybe they allow the preferred carriers to add wildfire deductibles. Even a million dollars. Look, I know a lot of associations that I've dealt with who, if I went to them and said, you can pay $500,000, and by the way, those come with high wildfire deductibles anyways, 100000 or you can go pay 50000 with XYZ Preferred Company, but your deductible is a million dollars. At first sight, they'd go, oh my God, a million dollar deductible? But when you get explained that all the HO6 policies that are in play could actually contribute towards that million dollar deductible, it's actually not so bad because it falls under loss assessment. So if the Department of Insurance allowed that, maybe that's an idea. Is loss right? assessment tied to every HO6 policy automatically? Or automatically, and then you can increase it from there. Huh. Right? If, uh, usually I think they start at $20,000 and you go up to 50000 At least they start at 10000 something like that. So it's very, very easy for consumers just to say, hey, I need more loss assessment coverage. The wildfire comes, you have a million dollar claim, you file your assessment to your insurance company, and they reimburse you minus your own deductible. It's very, very simple. And so maybe that's an idea, but I don't know if that's being suggested, but that would be something It's just like, hey, allow the standard markets to have large wildfire deductibles if that's the issue. Then we keep the market more healthy. Um, maybe we allow the insurance companies, the preferring companies to have a higher end charge. So it's like a lot of companies are like, look, we can't insure this risk for the most we can charge. What can we charge? It's what we're filed for. We're only filed to charge X amount of premium based on the metrics of this association. Maybe you could push that up to make it easier to get premium. Mm. Because as I said earlier, we have this big gap. We have a big gap between the preferred marketplace and then way off in the distance starts the excess and surplus lines carriers. Mm -hmm. And that's the problem. Yeah, and, and I think that even though the conversation has started, I. I still believe that associations and managers need to continue reaching out to the Department of Insurance because if we get quiet, it, it goes away. That's right. You know, we, we have to let them know that this is an ongoing issue and that it's just getting more and more expensive. So if you're being hit with these three hundred, you know, thousand dollar premiums or, or higher and, and um, you're in this predicament. Um, CLAC has the call to action at CAICLAC.com, C-A-I-C-L-A-C.com. Um, there's a form that you can fill out that you can reach out to the insurance commissioner. But they need to know, right, there's, what, 50,000 community associations in the state of California, I think, um, something like that. Yeah. And they've heard from 500. So, right. you know, right. we need to right. we need to get loud if yeah. we want to see some changes. Yeah, we have to come right? in CLAC for doing a great job. They're really yeah. doing a great job. and. And also for associations, I would say consider joining CAI because that is that's part of where your money goes is for those lobbying efforts. Well, great! I'm so glad that you came in today to give us this wonderful, wonderful Just news. Mr. Sunshine over here, huh? 
just wow you were on fire though patrick you were doing a great job this is um yeah this was sobering but uh it's good information to know i know that i learned a ton uh, as i always do when i sit down with you so really appreciate you coming in well thank you for the opportunity it's wonderful to see you Thank you so much. Um, make sure to visit our website at tinleylaw.com if you haven't already, where we break down this episode. And stay tuned for our next one. To share or subscribe to the Tinley Talks podcast, visit us at tinleylaw.com. There you can find links to everything discussed in this episode, locate helpful resources, check out other episodes, and submit questions for future topics. And be sure to tune in next month for our next episode. As always, the views and opinions expressed by the podcast, its presenters and guests do not constitute legal advice. For more information on the topics discussed in today's podcast, please consult with your association's legal counsel. This is Tinley Talks presented by Tinley Law Group, your community, your counsel.